0: Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 62.
1: Try to establish a good community of people that can support you, not just in the way of financially by selling their products to you, but people that can really help you and you can help them in in the process.
0: You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardage. On today's episode, we have Jake Christopher from Fallen Aspen Farm in Pennsylvania talking about pigs, lambs, and layers and his journey to get to where they are, how they're utilizing leased land to do it. And we also talk about him planting a thousand trees recently. I think it's a wonderful episode and I think you'll enjoy it. First, let's do the 10 seconds about my farm I think about the time you're listening to this, we're going to be in a heat dome. It's going to be pretty warm here in Oklahoma as well as northern part of Texas, the way the map looks. But the weathermen are saying there's some rain next week, so I'm always hopeful. Grass is holding up good for us, but it is getting hot and dry, so we can always use more rain and less heat. This week's review comes from... YouTube. Yes, we have a YouTube channel. If you haven't hopped over there and subscribed to us, we encourage you to do that. Also, if you'd like to click the like button on any of those videos, we appreciate it. It says, I love the Grazing Grass podcast. Please keep making more. We are working on it and we have some great episodes planned for the future, as well as some changes coming to the website. podcast will continue as is, but some changes on some things around it are coming up and we will let you know in the coming weeks. But anyway, let's talk to Jake. Jake, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're here today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Jake, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation?
1: My name is Jake Christoffel. We have a farm here in western Pennsylvania. Plain Grove, PA. We're about an hour north of Pittsburgh. We currently lease 57 acres on Western PA Conservancy land, nonprofit. And my partner and I run the farm. We've been here for 10 years now, pretty much done everything. What we have currently is pastured pigs, grass fed lamb, and pastured eggs at the
0: moment. Before we talk about some of that livestock, so you're leasing 57 acres from
1: western pa conservancy it's a nonprofit organization out of pittsburgh that conserves green spaces so they just purchased the other two recently but we've been here for about 10 years now the whole property actually that we sit on is about 400 acres but we only lease 57 plus the two barns it's, It's an amazing property. I I really never want to leave. We got a really nice creek running through the whole thing. We have a fen on the property, which if people are not aware, it's more of a rare wetland area with really alkaline water. Pretty much all under our fields and everything, it is limestone, so that's where we're getting the alkaline water from, which also gives us really amazing water. A little bit of history on the property. Right back here behind our house, they were quarrying a lot. We also have a couple mines that they were pulling pig iron out from the top of the limestone and making cannonballs for the Civil War, shipping them out on the railroads. I think there was a couple hunting camps and stuff, but then for the last 60 years, it has been in just a grass-fed beef operation. So our soil is a little sandy, a little bit rocky, but really nice topsoil here there was a woman who owned it for about 40 years that ran just cattle and then uh, there was another farmer who once she willed this whole property to the conservancy went to him and he was a organic grass-fed beef operation for 23 years he got into some discrepancies with the conservancy And got kicked off, (laughs) and then it sat for about three years vacant. Then a buddy of mine was the land steward here. You should uh, go after this. And I was like, yeah, maybe we will. And uh, that's kind of how we started into farming. We really don't have any background in farming. My grandpa, on my mom's side, had a farm and used to farm with horses and everything like that, never even had a tractor mainly because they were poor. But uh, other than that, really, no farming experience. Always did a lot of, you know, canning and grew up gardening and having chickens and stuff like that. And my partner, Desiree, she's actually from Providence, Rhode Island. I grew up 20 minutes down the road from here. She's lived all over the country, up in Alaska, California. She's worked in fisheries. Up in Alaska and then did a bunch of stuff out in California. But yeah, now we're here we're here farming.
0: <laughs> so you got that land ten years ago. What'd you yeah. start doing immediately with it?
1: When we got here, the first thing we were doing, we were growing garlic and we were doing vegetables. We put in about a thousand crowns of asparagus and we were doing a pastured egg operation and had about two hundred chickens at that point we had no idea what we were doing like at all made a lot of mistakes at the beginning we planted our asparagus out in the middle of one of our fields like not even close to the barns not even anywhere where we even had irrigation (laughs) same with the vegetables I had like this 30 foot camper trailer that I gutted and we had all the chickens in that it looked horrendous just trash but it worked for what it was for a while after that, after two years of kind of not knowing what we were doing and really not making any money, started meat birds on pasture. That was a great idea. So we started doing meat birds, and we started doing meat rabbits. Also, got out of the rabbits, and then we were in North Carolina at a Mother Earth News fair because my parents and I do hand-carved cooking utensils. We travel around all over the country doing shows with that as well. Anyways, we're in North Carolina. So then we went to see some pigs and we came home from North Carolina in a compact Prius packed full of stuff and two piglets as well. So that was our start into pigs. And then we went back the next year and got two more pigs. Those pigs kind of lived in the house for a little bit, the first two at least. From there, we bought some breeding stock. We got an Idaho pasture pig, a breeding pair, and then we bought in some large blacks. We bought in, brought in some Ossipa Island hogs that were crossed with Mulefoot and Cooney. And then a couple goats. We had a little dairy herd for a while. And I hate goats. And now we do not have goats anymore and that was a great choice. Then we got a few sheep and we really enjoyed the sheep. At that point we had been breeding pigs for a little while and we were starting to sell pork. Started lambing that following year. We got some Icelandics and crossed with black Welsh mom sheep and we mainly got those because I was I had dreams of you know sitting around the fire spinning yarn but obviously life comes at you pretty quick with a farm and it's like well there's really no time to do that whatsoever plus they would always get out and get into the burdock so their fleeces were pretty much shot then we got some cows we got belted galloways we had those for three or four years and I loved the cows they were amazing but they were a bit hard on stuff, and we kind of, like, didn't have the infrastructure at that point to be able to house or to be able to keep the cows where we wanted them, when we wanted them, blah, blah, blah. Now we're just focusing on the grass-fed lamb. We're at about, I think there's about 150 sheep out in the pasture right now, about 120 to 150 pigs fair to finish, and about two or 300 chickens in egg production.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about your pork operation, since that's the oldest operation you currently have going. Tell us how you have that set up and your feral to finish, correct?
1: We started out with like some smaller breeds. We really, really enjoyed like Cooney crosses and Oswald Island hog crosses. Then we got two large black sows in. All those mixes ended up being a bit too much of a lard breed so we ended up getting rid of the idaho pasture pig actually ai'd for one of the boars which was he was hampshire seaman that i ai would with and he was massive but he was my he was my baby i used to be able to ride him around his back came up to like my chest i'm not real tall (laughs) but i could ride him around my feet would be about a foot off the ground So yeah, we had him for a few odd years, and he just got so big. He was probably, I'd say he was about 900 pounds, eight or 900 pounds. He was starting to actually go a little bit lame, and he was injuring sows when he was breeding them, so we had to get rid of him. We brought in a Burke from a friend of ours. A bit too commercial for me, and they're squirrely. Never will do Berkshire again. And right now, we just brought in a red wattle boar and we're running about 12 12 sows we've got most of the breeding stock right now is mangalitza duroc crosses then we have a couple of our older large black crosses they'll never leave they're too much of our babies
0: are you going to use that as a terminal cross
1: yeah i don't think that we're going to go too much more into pigs as we are right now i'd like to do less pigs in the future and more sheep in the future but i think the biggest thing is right now that the pigs are what's bringing in the money right now we put them in the barn for the winter but we're not going to farrow in the winter anymore we've we've had some issues with that for some reason they always decide to go when it's 10 degrees outside Usually our breeding stock will leave in an area for their duration of farrowing. And then when we wean, we usually let them naturally wean, but then they will go into our feeder area. Then the feeder operation is moved around the farm. I I usually move them around every few weeks. I think we have about 90 feeders over there. And then in the fall, we usually run them around in our tree lines. We have a lot of oaks and hickories. And if it's a good year, we barely even have to feed them, which is nice. We have a local cider press right down the road that I've got a 12-foot dump trailer. They press year-round, so I go and get cider pressings, like about five or six ton usually. Imparts phenomenal flavor to that fat. On your
0: pigs, what kind of fencing are you using?
1: We have them currently in high tensile. Usually I have them in one or two-strand polywire. I tend to not use too much of the premier one with the pigs because they don't back up when they get shocked. They tend to go forward, and then oh yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a pig rip that entire fence like pop, 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 pop. Single strand usually worked quite well as long as I keep it weed whacked.
0: How high do you put that wire?
1: I just use step in posts, and then for all my corners, I use round rod, U bar posts.
0: And that wire's running how high off the ground?
1: Usually it's about 10 inches. The bigger pigs I can get away with oh okay, about a foot as long as it's at about eye level.
0: How are you processing your your pork? I assume you're taking it to a processor rather than doing it on the farm.
1: Yeah, currently we are taking it to a processor that's about an hour and a half away. We have two USDA facilities in the area because we sell direct to restaurants we sell direct to customer and then we also sell to a local co-op so all of our stuff has to be usda on the packaging line as well it's very important to us how our animals are treated especially for that one shit day that they have
0: and then you're getting your cuts of meat and you're selling you mentioned doing some restaurants are you selling farmers markets or do you have clientele built up and just selling from the farm
1: in the winter time usually we do home delivery we still do a little bit of home delivery right now mainly we do two farmers markets saturday and sunday in pittsburgh which is about an hour south of us and then to the grocery store they they order once a month or every few weeks we sell to them year round
0: are you trying to finish pig's I assume year-round, you mentioned earlier, you're not going to farrow in the winter anymore. But how's that affecting your finishing out?
1: Finishing out, it's still about the same. We usually process it about between 8 and 10 months.
0: Now, you're farrowing on pasture?
1: Yeah, usually what we're doing is I'll throw either junk bales, junk round bales, out into the pasture for them to make nests out of. And they'll just make their nests out of those, and usually no issues.
0: And you keep them on the sow till the sow weans them? When do you find the sow typically weans them?
1: I think we go a little bit longer than most people. I know a lot of people that sell feeders will wean them at five weeks. They'll be getting grain, but they'll still be getting that milk. If we wean them too fast, they're just not nearly as healthy. Usually, we're going to hit about eight to 10 weeks is when the moms will naturally wean them.
0: In addition to your sheep, or sorry, in addition to your pigs, you have sheep. Tell us a little bit how you manage those.
1: Just started slowly growing our stock up. We had an Icelandic ram, so they were all, at the beginning, crossed with Icelandic. Two or three years in, we got a Katahdin ram and started crossing with him and really increased our size. I think as of this past year, we were at about 70 ewes. This year, we should be somewhere around 100. We had a lot of singles and a lot of triplets this year. It was weird. This past year, this past summer, we brought in a texel ram we introduced him for the first week of breeding season his lambs and our other rams lambs is it's night and day i mean they were we just sheared them and they were about 3 months old and live weight some of the ones i was picking up were almost 80 pounds which amazed me cuz usually our sheep don't even get that big until like 10 months. (laughs) The only issue was with that, he brought in barber pole worm last year and pink eye, which I thought he had been wormed. He had not been wormed and not have any symptoms of it. And that ran through our flock last year, like wildfire. And we had never had barber pole on our property. And once they went down, they were dead. I mean, you just couldn't bring them back. And since it was still COVID-ish time, the supplies of Prohibit, which seems to be the only thing that works for barber pole worm, were not available anywhere. We had to scour everywhere. You couldn't find it on the internet. You couldn't find it. I mean, Tracture Supply doesn't even carry it anyways. We found it at this little hole-in-the-wall agway. finally. Once we treated them with that, it was completely gone. But it was pretty devastating. We lost about nine sheep Most of them lambs, I think we lost two ewes, two of our bottle babies, which was heartbreaking. The way that we run our sheep at this point, this is the first year, so we have about 150 sheep on pasture, we we lamb in the barn, usually, depending. Last year we lambed all out on pasture, they were beautiful. This year, since we started lambing a little bit earlier, which was in the end of February, we started lambing in the barn with pasture access to a few acres. And then just fed hay in the barn and out in the pasture. I use Premier One fencing, which I have a serious love-hate relationship with that stuff. It works really nice for training, but I've had a lot of issues with it. And If you're ever trying to go around anything that has a little tiny branch, or it's, there's a lot of swearing going on when I'm using Premier One fencing. At this point, we're pretty much doing daily moves. I've got about 150 of them on half an acre to an acre. At this point in the year, all of my pastures have pretty much gone to seed head. So I'm really trying to run them Mm -hmm. in smaller areas to really stomp that stuff down. Or I'll leave them in there for an extra day to get them to eat all those seed heads. I usually end up still going through with the brush hog just to clip all those pastures anyways. We're just getting ready this week actually to split all of our ram lambs off because we do not castrate.
0: Jumping back just a little bit on the breed. You, you use that text, textile ram for a week. How woolly are those sheep out of the Coddolands? I don't know if you have any straight Coddolands, but you use the codlin ram for a while.
1: What we actually found was the Coddan cross will actually grow wool but shed it. So the ones that we crossed with the Icelandics originally and the ones that we crossed with, they will grow a nice really big coat of wool in the wintertime. Not hair, but wool, and then they'll all shed. We have about 36 right now that will actually need shorn. The ones that are crossed with the Texel right now, it's such a crapshoot with them because it's like four different breeds in there and... Some will come out looking just like a texel. Some will come out just looking like an Icelandic, but like a bulldog. All the wool is all constantly different. Some, some of them have hair. Some of them
0: don't. I'm kind of curious about that cross because I've got Katahdans. And I've thought about using a different ram just to get a little bit of size dorper or texel. But not sure yet. We'll see how the coming year goes.
1: Crossing with a wool breed. Yeah, it's, it might be a pain in the ass to shear them every year, but you're going to get a way better size confirmation is what I found. Cause you know, like with the Katahdins are kind of just like long and lean and they don't put a ton of weight on them and they're kind of that slow growing, but mixing in that wool breed, you get some chonk to them.
0: Now you mentioned while well ago, you're getting ready to wean ram lambs and you don't cut them. How are you going to keep those ram lambs away from the ewes?
1: That does pose a problem sometimes. Actually, last year when we were loading all the ram lambs to butcher, I had gotten all of them in the barn. Everybody loaded onto the trailer. We sent like 20 or 30 ram lambs, and it was the last of them. I walked up just to check on the sheep, and I'm like, if there's one ram lamb that got through three high tensile fences, hot high tensile fences, and got the whole way over... To those, you land them like, you know what, screw it, you can stay. I, I'm, I'm not even chasing you down. It. I'm done. <laughs> if you went through that much trouble to get to them, fine. So he'll go to butcher this year. But so there might have been a little bit of inbreeding there, but whatever is what it is.
0: It is, and I find I'm getting ready to re wean lambs pretty shortly to my ran lambs, and I'm already dreading that because that's a battle every year that that I suffer with. I've thought about using Premier One netting to go around and keep them isolated a little bit better, but I haven't done that yet just because of the labor involved.
1: When we separate, we'll take the one flock of ewes and put them at the opposite end of the farm, and then we'll take the rams and put them at the other side. They really aren't that interested until about October.
0: Switching gears just a little bit to your staying on your lambs but on the opposite end on the processing are you selling able is your market good enough to handle that many lambs
1: so within one week and three days we had 20 some lambs gone i'd like to kind of hold back the new lambs from this year and breed them in the spring because usually what we do and i mean i'm sure a lot of people will probably not agree with this but i would breed whenever they were ready to breed we really never had any issues i think the only issues that we've had were one time we had one that did not have milk so i think that might have just been something genetic and we only had i think three bottle babies this year last year we had two so not terrible
0: are you selling the lambs by cut or are you selling whole lambs
1: we only sold one whole lamb last year. Everything else was by cuts. It's weird, the cuts that sell, but it all moved quick.
0: Very good. In addition to your sheep and pigs, you have your hens, your laying hens. Tell us a little bit about them before we get to the overgrazing section.
1: We stopped doing eggs for a long time, but we started again in 2021, 20, I think it was. But basically, we took old camper trailers, a 30-footer and a 26-footer, and I gutted those. and We stripped it all down just to the frame. I used 2x3s, actually, because it was, again, in the COVID times when it was so expensive. And then put 1-inch hardware cloth on the top of that. And then just basically built two walls and a slant roof. I put heavy-duty rubber that I got from a buddy. I just moved that around... With the tractor, all the manure falls right through, fertilizes all the pastures. I move them about once a week, usually. So they also, when it starts getting hot like this, they double. I can run them with the sheep, and those double as shade structures. Because out in our pastures, some of them are just completely useless in the summertime, just because it gets so hot and I don't have any shade. I ended up putting about a 1,000 trees in last year, over the last two years, just of... Um, hybrid willow, hybrid poplar, mulberry, black locust, um, some more hazelnuts, some more chestnuts. And what I actually found was I need to now start doing more drought tolerant trees because in the last two years we've been, we've basically been in a drought since last summer. So what I'm going a little bit more towards now is uh, Osage Orange which is really drought tolerant, but still grows pretty fast. And I mean, they're expensive, but if you're going to be doing something long-term, I really think it is important to purchase those tree tubes.
0: And that's what I was going to ask is if you use the tree tubes on them and how your experience has been with those.
1: We used some plantra. I had used some older ones that we had laying around and I feel like they get slightly opaque and I feel like that they do not exactly let enough light in, and it's not as great for the trees.
0: Now, on your Osage joints that you mentioned, do you have a certain cultivar that you're using or variety, or were you able to source some locally?
1: I did use a local nursery. Honestly, I went on Etsy, and I found a really good deal on uh, hybrid poplar cuttings and the uh, Austri hybrid willow cuttings, and I just bought them right through there because I think it was maybe 50 cents for a cutting and that was totally worth it. I used just where I run the animals for the most part that I can pretty much get shade on either side of them. So I put a lot of them along my actual fence posts that are running out through the middle of the field. And then some of our, like our largest pasture is about 30 acres. So I put about five rows through there. Um, And those are just the fast growing stuff that I put in there just to get some quick growth. And uh, I'm going to be, whatever dies, I'm going to be replacing with probably Osage Orange and then some other stuff. So it's just really where I needed it for those fields to be viable, to be able to graze in. Because, you know, when it's 90 degrees out, I can't even put anything out there without, and even with the shade structure or anything like that, it's a pain in the ass to move that thing around.
0: Very true. And then in addition to the shade, you get the potential for a little browse, depending on your animals, and then you get whatever fruit they drop, which that's what the the honey locusts with the bigger pods are supposed to be really nice for. In addition to your trees, have you planted anything else, or are you using the native forage there that you have?
1: I told you that we lease off of the Western PA Conservancy. They do a lot of conservation planting and what have you, so they plant a lot of trees on their properties, and they also do wildflower plantings but this past year they bought a woods no-till drill cedar two box six foot that thing's amazing but i have access to use it so we planted about i think 30 30 acres this year with some native pasture mix big blue stem little blue stem uh indian grass witch grass oh yeah blah 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 and then also there's this seed company right up the road from us. It's called Ernst Seeds. Their portfolio is amazing from what they actually have. And uh, I bought that through them. And then we also got this buzz and fuzz mix, which I was pretty excited about, which is a native mix and stuff specifically for sheep. I think they're mainly going after that solar farm um, pasture mix out here because that's really starting to blow up and uh, there's going to be a lot of sheep grazing under those solar farms around here
0: and did you put all those mixes in with that no-till drill
1: yeah over the years i've tried like when we had the cows i used to go in and pre-seed uh just broadcast before i sent the cows in and have them kind of stomp everything in i also don't think that i had enough cows to really make it work as well i mean i definitely seeded a ton of all of our pastures now are pretty much covered in clover which i did quite a bit of legumes in there So those ones definitely came up. I don't know how much the grass seed really worked, but the legumes definitely took off.
0: I feel the same way that when I broadcasted seeds in and let the cows try and trample it in, at times with certain species, I feel like I get a good result. And then other times I'm like, I can't even see I made a difference. So I dream of having a no-till drill just to play with, but I'm not there.
1: If you have the right, weather conditions and it's just wet enough that you can really get a hoof print in, then you're going to get a little bit more seed to soil contact with that. So a lot of goldenrod was coming up in our pastures. We ran the pigs over a lot of those pastures and they pretty much eradicated the majority of the goldenrod and some of those weedier species like burdock and yellow dock and stuff like that. And they've all come back really nice asher, honestly, but there still is quite a diverse mix. There's still a lot of weeds out there, what some people would call weeds, but the sheep that we mainly have, I mean, they like the forbs a lot better than they like the grass, work pretty well for them.
0: What do you do if you're getting short on grass or if your grass is getting too mature?
1: We don't really run out of grass. So like I said, this is the first year that we've had A larger amount of sheep so 150 sheep at this point but when all of our grass goes to maturity basically I just run them a little bit longer to get them because they will eat a lot of those seed heads off and trample quite a bit of it and then I'll just go and then clip everything that's needs clipped
0: it's always a judgment on my grazing ability I gotta do a better job of it whenever I have to go out there and clip anything but it, it's just part of it. It seems like everything matured. Like here this year, I was thinking, oh, wow, we're doing great. Everything is in a vegetative state growing. And then it just seeded out in no time. It was just a couple of weeks. Everything changed. But that's, that's the way it is every year. I just forget about it till it happens.
1: Another thing that I really like to do is I really like to let our pastures get mature to an extent because we have, I'm super into birds. We have tons of bobolinks and we have red-winged blackbirds and towhees and a lot of different pasture species. I really don't like to cut until I've gone through the pasture and I see that those birds have already fledged and I don't have to worry about mowing over any nests. Another thing we do now with our our sheep that we shear is we throw all of our uh, fleeces up in the trees for the birds. And within the last two years, we've really started seeing a lot of bird nests that were made of wool. Actually, I just posted one on Instagram two days ago, along with my I pick up shit out in the field and pull it apart and let people see the dung beetles. in And I don't know how many people actually like that. But that was actually one of my <laughs> most viewed videos, reels on Instagram, was me picking up a little piece of uh, sheep shit and a big dung beetle coming out of it. And I got like ten and a half thousand views on it. It was insane.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. That is
1: great. So some people love it and the other ones are like, why are you playing with shit?
0: Why are you doing that? You can't please everyone. <laughs> I haven't started digging through their manure enough other than kicking it with my boot. But I'm not seeing dung beetles yet. We've only recently quit using um, wormer on my cattle. I say recently, I'm two years into that. For my dad's herd, we still use poor old wormer, so we're not going to have a much much of a population out there. But I keep looking for it.
1: We really try not to use any worm. We did this year just because we had that barber pole worm last year. But it's a fungus that actually goes into the gut. They shit it out. And then in the soil, the fungus colonizes and then eats the eggs of a lot of the parasites. So reduces the parasite load by, I don't know, depending on what kind of ruminant you have, up to like 60 to 90 percent. It's not going to worm them. But it does decrease the population that they're putting back into the pasture with their manure.
0: So it's part of a a management program, but it's not going to save your animal from worms.
1: Right, but it definitely will reduce the amount of parasites in your pasture for the following years. So if you are on a worming schedule and you can kind of knock that out, whatever new worms that they get that they're going to shit out, then you can actually kind of mediate that.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. You mentioned earlier that you stockpiled forages for winter. Uh, Tell us a little bit, uh, when do you start stockpiling? Do you have certain pastures you stockpile because of their forage variety?
1: Um, Like I said, I mean, we have a pretty decent mix. So, uh, between warm and cool season grasses and species, but... There's about 30-ish acres that I try to keep stockpiled. So this year, I don't know how it's going to work again because we have, you know, a great deal more sheep than we had last year. But my two neighbors that are surrounding me, usually I graze off their pastures. And then our other neighbor across the street, he has a hay field, but he never runs his cows into it. And uh, I started doing that about two years ago because he was always complaining. He's like, "Oh, it's always junk over there." And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, "Well, why don't you let me run my sheep over there? Because all you're doing is cutting hay off of it, and you're not putting much of anything back." But over the last two years, it's really improved his pastures. It's coming back beautifully. So that's a really nice stockpile for the winter. And then from there, usually about December, January. I get a month out of their pastures, and then I can move all the stuff back to our pastures. And like I said, we were we were somewhere around uh, February when we needed to start feeding hay this year.
0: Oh, very good. That's always wonderful to make it that far into winter without feeding hay. Jake, as you look towards the future, what are some of your plans for the next few years with your farm?
1: My parents actually have a building down in Harmony, and it's an old train station uh, that we were talking about remodeling and taking our animals to be killed USDA and then being able to bring them down there and break them down and have that facility be also USDA on the packaging line. So then we can really control the process and not have so much variation, be able to do, you know, sausage flavors that we want, nitrite free bacon, et cetera. But other than that, I think doing more lamb, as we said. I really like animals that eat grass. They're a lot cheaper than animals that eat grain.
0: Oh, yes. Well, Jake, it's time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question, what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource?
1: I mean, resource is basically YouTube and everything on the internet. It's, it's very helpful. Um, I just recently read a book oh, it is. that I thought was fantastic called uh, Fertility Pastures. I've read a lot of different grazing books, Greg Judy on YouTube. I take stuff from everywhere. I can't say any of them are my favorite. I just, I'm constantly on headphones listening to audio books and everything else and podcasts. You guys, you know, listen to the Grazing Grass podcast and um, the Working Cows podcast. is another good one that I enjoy, but um, yeah.
0: Very good. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your farm?
1: the uh, side-by-side and my tractor and, and uh, non-tool-wise, probably my partner Desiree. She's a pretty important <laughs> piece to the farm. I can do a lot of the work, but she has that gentle finesse that she can actually see everything that's going wrong, especially with the animals, stuff that I don't pick up on. So she's, she's a pretty key part here.
0: Our third, third question, what would you tell someone just getting
1: started? I would tell people that they should really look at the community around them and have, you know, try to establish a good community of people that can support you not just in the way of financially by selling their products to you but people that can really help you and you can help them in in the process. I've got a really great group of neighbors, I have really amazing customers. Just friends that come and help out on the farm just because they love to do it. We've definitely formed a really nice community around this place. And that is very important because if you don't have community, you have nothing.
0: You know, just on the last episode with Clay, we were talking about community and how important that was. So, yeah, I agree with that. Now, I have to admit, I don't have any friends that just want to come work on my farm. I'd like to get some, but most of them don't volunteer. And Jake, lastly... Where can others find out more about you?
1: Mainly, you can go to our website. Desiree actually makes really amazing soap with our lard, 100% lard soap and lard bombs. Oh, yes. But, yeah, on our website, you can check us out. But mainly, if you want to see everything that's going on, I post constantly on Instagram, it's just at Fallen Aspen Farm. I try to do something at least every day, either on a store, usually just on my stories. I don't do a whole lot of actual posting, but that has been the biggest key driver for marketing and people being able to see what's going on here and us being able to be transparent as possible.
0: I think that's really good. First off, I need to get some of that large soap and try it. And secondly, just posting to those stories is something I have to to work on. So I think that's great. And Jake, I really appreciate you hopping on here today. Kind of last minute, but I do
1: appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, Click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And Until next time, keep on grazing grass.